So just uh, for context, this is a recorder into the uh, cell phone. And the chanting is a way of alerting yourself and myself to the fact that this is a Dhamma talk. And to give um, encouragement to bring attention in a particular way. So, you know, when we're... um, hanging out over a cup of tea in a coffee shop or when we're um, talking with friends over dinner. There's one kind of focus of attention, but in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in this kind of a context, there's a, a, an encouragement to have your attention be very deeply connected to your body so that you're listening from your whole body. And um, I'd, I'd be quite pissed off if you believe what I say, because what I'm interested is is that you actually are in relationship with your own somatic resonance with what lands for you with what I say. So this is not about belief, it's about reflection and inquiry. And you can know when there's things that are really important to listen to because they resonate with your own truth. And you can know that because your body will relax and your breathing uh, will drop into a a deeper, more um, calm rhythm. And and you can know those things because your attention is resting in your body. So in listening to a Dhamma talk, the encouragement is to have 90% of your attention infused in your body and 10% of your attention on me, what I'm saying what's happening with my face and my expressions of my hand so that you really get it when something lands that feels ah feels right it really registers so i wanted to speak tonight about the khandas the khandas is the pali word for the five aggregates and how to practice with them and before i jump into the aggregates what i wanted to do was to give a context about one of the ways or the shapes or the in which they're approached. So in the foundations of mindfulness, when we're working with the foundation of the body, we're working with establishing awareness in the body in terms of posture, in terms of movement, in terms of the different parts of the body, in terms of the elements of the body, okay? And all of this gives us a foundation to be able to be present with things without absorbing into them and without getting distracted or uh, caught in the stories around them. So the foundation of awareness in the body is really, really important for giving us leverage for working with everything else that arises. And because things in this world are holographic. If we have a thought, there'll be a physical correlate connected to that thought. 
there'll be a physical consequence of that thought. And so if we are experiencing a lot of turbulence in our thoughts and the thoughts are very sticky and they have a lot of associations and it's really hard to be with the thoughts and be observant rather than uh, attached, then we can drop our attention or shift our focus to the physical correlate of that thought and see what that feels like. And when we change our frame of reference, then sometimes it gives us more space and more capacity to be with something in a way where we're not getting stuck and we're not getting confused. So the first foundation of mindfulness is the body, and the second foundation of mindfulness is the feelings. And these feelings are the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And with every sense contact, everything that we see, everything that we taste, every body sensation, every thought that we have, there's going to be a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral correlate connected to it. And most of the time, we're not paying attention to that, because seeing the pleasantness of it, or the unpleasantness of it, or, or the neutrality of it, is totally not exciting. And our minds are really habituated to go to what's exciting. And so part of the reason why paying attention to that is so important is because it, it, it diffuses the charge that the excitement has in the object itself when we begin to begin to just get a sense of, oh, it's pleasant, oh, it's unpleasant, oh, it's neutral. And, you know, we can see the ways that we react or tend to react, the patterns that we have to pleasant and the ways that we react to unpleasant. You know, for myself, pleasant, I have this kind of view that if I can pull pleasant into the center of my mandala and dissolve there, then that's where happiness is, you know. And so there's a kind of very strong tendency to attach to pleasant for me. Some people have an aversion to pleasant. You know, they hate it, and so they feel they contract around it. Some people feel fear when they experience pleasant because they have this sense that it's going to pass and they don't want it to pass. So each of us needs to be cognizant of our own reactions to pleasant. But we also can use it as a way of understanding unpleasant. What happens? You know, what kind of resistance do we have? What kind of pulling back or contracting or wanting to kill it or annihilate it or get rid of it, you know, these kinds of thoughts. Or the way in which the experience of unpleasant immediately causes the mind to fantasize about pleasant, okay? So, you know, it's hot out and we think of drinking a cool iced tea. Or, you know, our body hurts and we imagine getting a massage. Or, you know, we feel sick and we fantasize running a marathon. And so it's not to say that any of these things are wrong or bad, but what we're wanting to see is that the mechanisms that when certain stimulus happens, it elicits a certain response. And when there isn't clarity about this cause and effect relationship, then what happens is, is that the, there's a drivenness in our life rather than a settledness and a peacefulness and a calmness and a responsiveness to what's arising. Okay? So pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, as totally uninteresting and as unexciting as they are, are phenomenally useful 
tools for getting more leverage onto what's happening and as a way of changing the frame of reference so that we've got another thing to pay attention to that isn't as exciting and therefore sometimes a little bit easier to work with. The third foundation of mindfulness is the mental formations, what's happening in our mind. Okay, So we can have thoughts and we can have emotions and we can have uh, feelings in the way that we normally think about them. And most of the time when we have all of this stuff happening, it arises and we stick to it like fly to a flypaper. It's like stuck. So there's no sense of, of space around it. You know, I am sad, I am depressed, I am angry, I'm fucking furious. You know, I am. Okay? So there's this sense of cathecting to the thing that we're experiencing. There's no sense of this is arising in awareness and we are observant of it. So meditation is a crowbar to get some leverage into that opening up a little bit more space so that there's that sense of this is arising and there's the observation of it. I am not what it is that I'm experiencing. There might be rage, there might be depression, there might be joy, there might be sadness. All of these things are allowed, but that's not who I fundamentally am. Big difference, big difference, big, big, big difference. Mm -hmm. So the point of the third foundation of mindfulness is to give permission to what it is that we feel and to understand that when there is enough connectedness, when there's enough mindfulness, when there's enough clarity and clear comprehension present, we don't need to do anything with what has arisen. Simply being aware of what has arisen is sufficient for it to shift and change and watch as it dissipates. Okay? Now, this point is really important because this is an absolute gold key. This is a diamond. This is a, a key to liberation. This is a ticket to freedom. And it's not always so easy to tell why it is so valuable. But the reason why it's so valuable is because we operate in a world of duality. And that world of duality is really important in a contextual framework. It's really important to understand what's right and wrong in terms of behavior, in terms of speech, in terms of action. Okay? But in terms of reflecting on mind states, in the experience of meditation when there's enough mindfulness present, we do not need to engage in an opinion about whether we think something is right or wrong because it's present. When there is enough mindfulness present to be aware of what is arising, we can just know that the mind is filled with lust or the mind is filled with rage or the mind is filled with depression or restlessness or grief. There doesn't need to be a program that we engage with to change that. 
Now, the reason why we have to understand this as contextual is because it presupposes that we are committed to the precepts, it presupposes that we are committed to the refuges, and it presupposes enough awareness to be able to observe it without getting lost in it. That's a lot of suppositions. That's a lot there. That's a lot there. But when those things are there, it means that we have absolute, complete, 100% carte block permission to feel whatever it is that we feel. We do not need to be engaged in battle, in war, in hating, or even having an opinion about what it is that we're thinking or feeling. Now, saying that doesn't mean that we don't have choice in how we pay attention to it. We do. We absolutely do have choice in how we pay attention to it and the consequences of what kinds of beliefs we form and shape as a result of it. Okay? It doesn't dismiss that. But that first bit that you can feel what you feel and not engage in battle with it is really, 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 really important. Because for many of us, we create a war and we pile up all the things that we like to feel. You know, I like to feel energetic and kind and compassionate and I like to feel wise and I like to feel resourced and I like to feel um, capable and I like to feel resilient and I like to feel creative and I don't like to feel nasty or snarky or mean or ugly. I don't like to feel angry. I don't like to feel frightened. I don't like to feel vulnerable. I don't like to feel insecure. I don't like to feel out of control. And so we create a war between the things that we want, wanting to collect them and pile them up and build them and secure them and affirm all of the times when we feel them and we like to create a situation where all the stuff that we don't like, we want to get rid of it, we don't want to know about it, we don't want to have relationships with anybody who triggers those feelings in us. And so we create a war. We create a war inside of ourselves, and most of the time we project that war outside. There's good people and bad people. I want to have the good people near me and get rid of the bad people because the good people make me feel about myself the things I want to believe about myself. And the bad people trigger all these nasty feelings in me and I don't want to have any of them. So get rid of them. So there's a war. And living in war is not peaceful. It's exhausting. Okay? So the third foundation of mindfulness is a ticket to end the war that you don't have to do this. You can be aware of what's arising without having a kind of hissy fit because what's happening either is something you like or you don't like it. You can just be aware of it. Now, it's scary when we're dealing with stuff that's activating for us. You know, rage is really not an easy mind state to be attentive to. Neither is lust. You know, it's out of control most of the time. But when there's enough mindfulness to watch it and just know it, it can be observed in awareness without it spilling out into action. And when it's not spilling out into action, we can watch the mind state in all of its color. It exists for a while. It has an impact on our body. But we can watch it and watch it fade. 
We don't need to engage in an activity to try and change it. That's the third foundation of mindfulness. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is to look at the mind states that we're having in terms of various different categories. And one of the categories is the khandhas, the aggregates. Okay? To see it in terms of, is this part of the five aggregates? Is this something I'm experiencing in my body? Is this a feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Is it a perception? Is it a mental formation? Is it consciousness? So we take the third foundation of mindfulness as like an entrance into non-duality. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is the ability to work with this non-duality in a way where we begin to stabilize more the qualities which are wholesome and allow and support the qualities which are unwholesome to release. We go back into the world of duality, but not from the perspective we had before where we are at war with what is good and what is bad, but as a way of stabilizing the qualities that are wholesome because it's more peaceful to have more wholesome states than negative states, and as a way of diminishing the states that are unwholesome because it's easier on our system to have them less than more, but not because we are at war with them. We don't go back into that position of fundamental opposition to the things that we find are negative. And so the whole fourth foundation of mindfulness are all of the different ways of grouping the categories that we experience in our mind to get more leverage so that there's more balance and there's more skill. There's more wholesome mind states. There's less unwholesome mind states. And there is more capacity to relax in the awareness that knows what is arising rather than absorb into the content of what is arising. So the five aggregates is form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And look, it dovetails. The first foundation, form, is the first foundation of mindfulness. The first aggregate is the first foundation of mindfulness. The second aggregate, feeling, is the second foundation of mindfulness. The third and the fourth aggregate is the third foundation of mindfulness. Okay? So there's a dovetailing between these two, how they're actually working together. Consciousness is not, an a, is not a, a foundation of mindfulness. Consciousness is the, is the perception that arises with the sense contact. Okay? It's not actually a foundation of mindfulness. But we can see that when we take things apart in terms of the five aggregates, again, there's less of a chance to have a hissy fit. Because usually when we're looking at it in terms of the five aggregates, there isn't this huge sense of me and my. There's just a sense of these different components that are activated. So it's another way of dismantling the sense of it's me, it's my problem, this is my problem. 
It will always be my problem. And this is fundamentally who I am, which is something that we do all the time. This is me. This belongs to me, or this is not me. So when we look at it in terms of the aggregates, when we take it apart in terms of that, we can see there's body components, there's feeling components, there's the perception of things, and then there's the formations that happen in relationship to that. It's the associations that come in relationship to that. So perception is like color and shape, foreground, background, okay? Mental formations is like man, woman, carpet, dog, building. I like it, I don't like it, you know? This feels scary to me because of what happened last week when I was near this, okay? So when we are able to look at our experience in terms of the aggregates, then it takes some of the charge out of uh, the kind of thought patterns and the proliferation tendencies that happen with it. When awareness is centered and clear, we can be aware of the experience of body in terms of body sensations or density. We can be aware of the experience of pressure or movement. We can be experience the postures that we're in. We can know the different parts of our body. Okay. When we're paying attention in that way, there's less the ability to say, this is me, this is mine. There's just the observation, this is body. And body operates in this kind of a way. Okay? When you're sick, it has this kind of an impact. When you're well, it has this kind of an impact. Feeling the quality of unpleasant, pleasant and neutral Again, when we look at that, then it dismantles the kind of packaging, the lumping, the bundling that happens around experiences. When we can see something as the differentiation between the perception of something, the basic thing of shape and color and and the, the distance, and then the associations connected to that, then it slows down the proliferations connected to that. When these things are seen a little bit more by themselves. And then the consciousness, the, the quality of the contact, the sense and the knowing that comes together, that arises with every single contact. So with every sight, there's going to be an object, there's going to be the seeing, and then there's the consciousness that puts it together. So with sense contact, it arises in the moment, and it vanishes 
in the moment. And so there isn't even a sense of self in that, okay? Since consciousness is not where we can locate ourselves. So the way of working with the khandas is, is a way of dismantling that concept that I am permanent and existing throughout time and space. And the value of doing that is because when we feel ourselves as I am existent and permanent existing in time and space, then with that comes all of the fear of wanting to protect me and all of the defensiveness and resistance and anger of anything that threatens me. But when we look carefully, is there really something that's permanent and existing throughout time and space? Really, look. No. What is there? Where can you find that? Who is that? Where is it? Where do you see it? Which part of your system, your body, your mind, your heart, where is that? Where's that bit? that's permanent and existing throughout time and space. So when we look and then we have a, a response, do we or do we not find that? And if we don't find that, then what happens is, is that it helps us shift our relationship with the things that are arising and helps us reestablish the mindfulness to just know what is arising rather than get lost in the idea or the association or the thoughts about what is happening. So these two are mutually supportive. Mindfulness allows us to be aware of the five aggregates. The five aggregates supports the establishment of mindfulness. They're mutually supportive. And when we are dismantling complexity and seeing things in terms of simplicity, then what we are able to experience is much less confusion and fear and aggravation and much more clarity about you know, what we need to do and how we need to do it and what's in the next step. So um, there is a teacher who's no longer living. Her name is Upasika Ki Kenyon, and she never ordained as a um, uh, as a Buddhist nun. She re- she remained an eight precept layperson or an eight precept Upasika, and um, she was considered to be fully awakened. And some of her work has been translated by Tamisaro Bhikkhu. And a number of her books are available free uh, to download on the Awakening Truth website under um, teachings. And her writings on the khandas are incredible. They are absolutely incredible because her mind is incredibly clear. And um, there's, there's, no, there's no confusion. And there's no 
there's no m movement towards what is pleasant or away from what is painful. There's just the clear seeing of what is. Now, the other person who wrote um, something about the khandas, which is totally awesome. This is going to die in a second, and I don't have a charger. Is Ajahn Mun. He wrote something about the, 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 the aggregates. And if anyone has a cell phone that I can fiddle with it for a second, I'll see if I can find it in just two minutes. Um, can you open it up to a, a, a search engine? And I'll see if I can read it, and, and if I can find it. Otherwise, we'll stop. Two seconds. Okay, the ballad of liberation from the Khandas. I pay homage to the well gone, the foremost teacher, the Sakyan sage, the rightly self awakened one, and to the nine transcendent Dhammas and to the noble Sangha. I will now give a brief exposition of the Dhamma of the Khandas as far as I understand them. Once there was a man who loved himself and feared distress. He wanted happiness beyond the reach of danger, so he wandered endlessly. Wherever people said that happiness was found, he longed to go, but wandering took a long, long time. He was the sort of man who loved himself and really dreaded death. He truly wanted release from aging and mortality. Then one day he came to know the truth. Abandoning the cause of suffering and compound things, he found a cave of wonders of endless happiness, i.e. the body. As he gazed throughout the cave of wonders, his suffering was his destroyed. His fears appeased. He gazed and gazed around the mountainside, experiencing unbounded peace. He feared if he were to go and tell his friends, they'd say he'd gone insane. He better stay alone, engaging in peace, abandoning thoughts of conduct, than to roam around as a syncophant, both criticized and flattered, exasperated and annoyed. But then there was another man, afraid of death, his heart all withered and discouraged. He came to me and spoke frankly in a pitiful way, and he said, You've made an effort at your meditation for a long time now. Have you seen it yet, the true Dhamma of your dreams? A, how is it that he knows my mind? He asked to stay with me, and so I agreed. I'll take you to a massive mountain with a cave of wonders, free from suffering and stress, mindfulness immersed in the body. You can view it, view it at your leisure to cool your heart and end your troubles. This is the path of the noble lineage. It is up to you to go or not. I'm not deceiving or compelling you. I'm just telling you the truth for what it is. 
And then I challenged him with these riddles. First, what runs? What runs quickly is vinyana. This is uh, consciousness. Movements walking in a row, one after another, not doubting that sanya's perceptions are right. The heart gets caught up in the running back and forth. Perceptions grab hold of things outside and pull them in to fool the mind, making it think in confusion and go out searching, wandering <coughs> astray. They fool it with the various dhammas like a mirage. What gains total release from the five khandhas? The heart, of course, and the heart alone. It doesn't grasp or get entangled. No more poison of possessiveness. No more delusion. It stands alone. No sanyas can fool it into following along behind them. When they say there's death, what dies? Sankaras, that's conditioned things, destroying their effects. What connects the mind into the cycle? The tricks of sanya, perception, make it spin. The mind goes wrong because it trusts in sanyas, attaching to its likes, leaving this plane of being, going to that, wondering till it's dizzy, forgetting itself, completely obscure to itself. No matter how hard it tries to find the dhamma, it can't catch a glimpse. What ferrets out the dhamma? The heart ferrets it out trying to find out how sanyas say good and grasp at bad and force it to fasten on loving and hating, to eat once and never look for more. The end of wanting to look, to know, to hope for knowing more. The end of entanglements. The mind sits still on its dais, discarding its attachments. The four-sided pool brimming full. The end of desire abandoning doubt, clean without a moat and danger-free. Sanyas, perceptions settle out, sankaras, formations don't disturb it. The heart is thus brimming with nothing lacking. Quiet and still, the mind has no lamenting thoughts, something worth admiring day after day, even if one to gain the heavenly treasures by the millions there'd be no match for the true knowing that abandons all sakaras. The crucial thing, the ending of desire. Labels stay in their own sphere and don't intrude. The mind, unenthralled with anything, stops its struggling. Like taking a mirror to look at your reflection. Don't get attached to the sanyas, which are like the image. Don't get intoxicated with issues of the sankaras. When the heart moves, you can catch sight of the unadulterated heart. You know for sure that the movement is in yourself because it changes. Inconstancy is a feature of the heart itself. You need to criticize anyone else. No need to criticize anyone else. You know the different sorts of khandhas in the moving of the mind. I'm going to stop there. So that's part of it. So Ajahn Mun was a great forest meditation master. He was a, one of the masters that brought back the, um, the teachings of the Buddha and the way that the Buddha lived and practiced them into the forest tradition of Thailand. And Ajahn Shah is a disciple of Ajahn Mun. So the meditation master who was my teacher, who was Noah's Levine's teacher, 
is Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah was a disciple of Ajahn Mun who wrote that. So I want to pause here, and we can have a few minutes break, and then maybe a little bit more circly, and we can have a discussion. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.